Do any of you remember how Nathan greeted you when he walked up? Anybody? Yeah. What's up, Salt Company? Does that sound familiar? Okay, I am prone to say that oftentimes too. What's up, Salt Company? You guys say, woo, right? Okay, if Salt Company was an event, we would say, welcome to Salt Company. But we don't do that. We say, how are you doing, Salt Company? Because Salt Company is you. Salt Company is not our staff. Salt Company is not an event. It's not a Thursday night. It's not a Tuesday or Wednesday night connection group. No, you are Salt Company. Salt Company is a group of college students seeking to add flavor to life, right? To be people that are impacting the world. And also to be preservatives, preserving life, telling people about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You are Salt Company. And for those of you that are here for the first time or are visiting, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're a part of us. Um, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm a men's ministry leader. I get to be on staff and work with the dudes. Holler at my dudes. <gasps> yeah, they're really not that masculine, I promise you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's awesome to be with you tonight. And we're going to pick up in our identity series. We're in week three. And so I'm going to do a quick flyover of where we've been and then kind of tell you where we're going. So week one, Nathan taught through Genesis 2 and 3 the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, falling into sin. And we see God restoring Adam and Eve. And Nathan's big idea was knowing God is the key to finding your identity. Last week, if you were here, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. The one that knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the concept that Jesus makes you more than forgiven. He makes you righteous. And with you guys, I can rejoice in that. Right? We can worship to that. It's good news. And we can know in our heads as we open the word of God that God has given us an identity. That God has forgiven us. That he has made us righteous. But if you're anything like me, you're, you're going to wrestle with this weird tension of leaving on a Thursday night on an emotional high, and you're going to feel all these things. You're going to feel the energy. You're going to feel close to God. You're going to feel forgiven. You, might, you may even begin to taste a small taste of what, it, what it's like to feel righteous. But then your week goes on. You wake up Saturday morning, and you don't feel righteous you might not even feel forgiven, and you may not even feel God. When we look at what's going on around us and what's going on within us, uh, our hearts begin to play games with our heads. Um, it begins a battle of the emotions, and we're not strangers to emotion. I'm not far removed from you guys. I'm, I'm turning 28 next week, but... Uh, I am in a different generation than you. So uh, the unique thing that I've, I've found in studying today's college students, college population, Gen Z. Gen Z. Gen Z. I thought I had it hard being a millennial because people ripped millennials. Y'all got your work cut out for you. <laughs> Gen Z is reporting new levels of fear, anxiety, and depression 
is unprecedented. And I do not mean to make light of that. Mental illness is real, and mental illness is present even in this room. I know that. You've been plagued more so than my generation by social media, deceitful mainstream media, political chaos, and more. And you're beginning to ask difficult identity questions. Uh, the first one that came to mind for me is, who am I if I don't have friends that approve of me? Or if I say it another way, who am I without Instagram likes, right? Anybody ever deleted an Instagram post because it wasn't racking up likes, or is that just me? Okay, awkward. Anyways, um, yeah, that's, sadly, that's post-Jesus Jordan, um, years removed. Thing out of my pocket? Okay. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for liking me. Um, okay. Who will I be when I don't have a sport in my life anymore? Maybe you're wrestling with that for the first time as a freshman in college. Who am I if I am alone or if I end up alone? What will happen to me if I get that 4.0 GPA, but in the process rack up student debt? and still end up in a dead-end career. We're not naive. We know that different things we identify with, whether it's friends or popularity, our athletic or academic careers, our financial goals or financial stability, and even our picture of the ideal family, we know that these all can be taken from us. So what happens when our emotions, our fear, leaks into our faith walk, and we begin to ask, can this be taken from me too? If God gave me this identity, why do I continue to mess up? How can I be called righteous when I'm thinking, acting, and talking like this? How can I know my identity even when I don't feel it? Tonight, we're going to be in Romans 8, so if you have your Bible, you can open up. Uh, if you have it on your phone, pull it out. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a context before we get there. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to Christians in, any guesses? Rome! Weird! He's, he, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. Uh, and what we need to know about the Roman church is it is characterized by Jewish and Gentile Christians. Now, Jews had been forced out of Rome shortly before this letter was written, and they came back five years later after the emperor had died, and they came into their church and saw that it was primarily Gentile believers, non-Jews. And they started to have questions and controversy because there's two different people groups, and they're asking the question, what does it mean to be God's people? What role does my Jewishness play in being God's people? Or what role does me being a non-Jew play in being God's people? Paul writes to Roman Christians, those that are following Jesus, and he says, I am going to unite you in this letter under one message, under one banner, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He unpacks that humanity was trapped in sin and that the rescue would not come through the law. Your, your sheer obedience cannot allow you to measure up, but God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. 
Jesus, the Son of God, lived, died, and rose from the dead and has given his spirit to those that place their faith in Christ as Savior, thus creating a new faith-based family of God. It's not a bloodline. It's not on measuring up. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be in chapter 8, starting in verse 12 which starts with the word, so then. Uh, so we kind of need to know what we're, what we're coming up from before we dig into the text. So beginning of verse or chapter 8, Paul writes, he says, Christ came to save us from our inability to measure up. Christ did not come to condemn us, but to save us. He did what we couldn't do and now empowers us to live a new life. Jesus didn't just come, clean up our act, and leave us on our own. He says, no, I'm giving you my spirit. So God is giving those that place their faith in Christ his spirit, the same spirit that allowed Jesus to live a perfect life, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is now living in us, those who place their faith in Christ. So that's where we're at. I'll start in verse 12, and we'll read through 13. God, through Paul, writes, So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We see a stark contrast. If you are living by the flesh, that leads to death. But if you're living by the Spirit, that leads to life. Sounds kind of out there, doesn't it? So we need to break it down. We need to figure out what Paul is talking about when he says flesh and sin. Defining flesh, it is sin nature that opposes God and seeks to gratify selfish desires. Think back two weeks ago, if you were with us, Adam and Eve, they see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their sin nature, life in the flesh, says, I want that. Right? I know God told me not to, but I want it. It's just kind of like a sense of greed, like, but that's what I want. And in creeps pride, which says, my way is better than God's way. I deserve that fruit because he's holding out on me. So they're living this active approach to oppose God and gratify their selfish desires. That's what it means to live by the flesh. You're opposed to God and you're seeking to gratify selfish desires. And the reality is, from our text tonight, we're told that that leads to death. And as I began to think through that, it's like, holy cow, our own desires lead us down a path of destruction. When I think about all the things that we could chase after, and man, if not for the grace of God, I would chase after, it's scary to think about where I would end up thinking about you can sleep with whoever you want, you can do whatever you want with your money, you can be a millionaire, buy a beach house, drink all day, and yeah, sleep around. But the reality is, you're still going to feel empty. You can have a bank account that says a million and still feel like you have nothing. Look at our celebrity culture today. And when the time comes that you die, you can't take any of it with you. Heavy, I know. 
but it's contrasted with the way of the Spirit. A life marked by the Spirit, the presence of God in us, giving us the ability to know, love, and follow Jesus and live a life that is pleasing to him. Now, when you look at how I explained life in the flesh, life in the Spirit is drastically different, but that's not to say that some of the things that we're desiring are inherently bad. So, who am I going to sleep with? Can you have sex living a life of the Spirit? Absolutely, it's within the context of marriage. And it's designed to point us back to God. Can you have money and live a life by the Spirit? Absolutely. God has given us the gift of money to steward well, to use it to impact others and to build his kingdom. Can you have a beach house and live a life by the Spirit? I think so. I mean, if we're, if we're going to plant a salt company in Hawaii, who's moving with us? Amen. Let's go. Right. You can live a life by the Spirit and enjoy the goodness of God, but what it looks like is not seeking to satisfy your own selfish desires, but seeking to satisfy God. It's living a life that is marked by the truth, which we find through the Bible. I hope you stick around for the late night to, to figure out what it means to read your Bible, because this is how we know the truth. So I want to give you a quick uh, activity so we're going to close our eyes, and it's going to start funny, but it's going to get heavy, so, so bear with me, all right? I want you to close your eyes and envision that you are deeply in debt as a result of a destructive behavior that if left to your own devices, you would go down the path. Okay, mine, just to let you guys know where I'm at, I'm doing cocaine, right? Um, I'm a drug lord because, man, that's probably where my sin nature would take me. Um, so you are in debt and you are going down this path of destruction, whether it's buying shoes galore to the point that you're broke and can't put food on the table for your kids, or whether you're like me and you're abusing a substance. The person that is lending you the money is not your friend. You may think they're your friend because they're the one giving you the money, but they're feeding your destructive behavior. And come to find out, this person is after you. Because you owe them an incredible debt. A debt that you don't have the money for, and a debt that you will never have the money for. You get a message that they're coming for you. And the reality is this. You pay up, or they're, they're going to pull the trigger. So this person meets you face to face, gun in hand, and walks a person you do not know with the money you do not have, pays your debt, and the guy that was going to kill you walks away. You can open your eyes. The question that I have for you is, moving forward, to whom or to what do you owe your life to? Do you owe your life to what you your destructive behavior? <laughs> Do you need to go back to that to prove that it was worth something? Do you need to owe the person that you originally owed money to? Do you have to go back and build a friendship with them? Or do you need to figure out who the heck the guy is that paid off your debt? 
if you're anything like me, you know the logical answer is, I need to get to know this man. That is who I owe my life to, because without him, I would be dead. Christian, you do not owe your sin a thing. Your sin is out to kill you. You do not owe your sin a thing. And you have to realize that on the flip side is a spirit. God in you who has paid your debt and is pleading with you to follow him and empowering you to say no to the flesh. So if you're going to say no to the flesh, the only realistic response is to say yes to the Spirit. But what does this mean? What does it mean to live by the Spirit? Because it sounds really abstract. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. To live by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit of God. And when I think about what it means to be led by the Spirit, I think we can confuse that with knowledge. I told you guys earlier, I want you to know the truth. But I was just reading with a student at Co. uh, this week, and we stumbled across James 2.19, which says, Even the demons know who God is, and they shudder. (laughs) To know is not enough. To know the Bible is not enough to be considered being led by the Spirit. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. To be led by the Spirit is to not just know, is not just to hear, but to follow the truth to follow Jesus. And so when we talk about practically speaking, what does it look like to follow Jesus, to hear his voice and to follow? In verse 13, it says, you put to death the deeds of the body. You fight your sin. Now you're probably thinking with me, man, I've been a Christian. I've tried Christianity I've either been doing it for days, weeks, months, or years. But why do I still feel sin? Man, am I living a life that's led by the flesh because I accepted Jesus into my heart, but I'm still seeing sin? We can be encouraged by the fact that a sign of living by the Spirit is conviction. You are not saved to be perfect. Jesus alone is perfect. You will continue to sin, but as you sin, even feeling conviction is a sign of God's grace to you. Because if you are led by the flesh, you would not feel sorry for what you're doing. You would not feel compelled to turn around. So for those of you in the room that are bearing shame because of your sin, you are walking in step with the Spirit if you feel conviction and are repenting. Repenting means to turn the other way, the desire to run from your sin and to seek obedience. 
do we have a role to play? Absolutely. It says, you put to death the deeds of the body. But we cannot miss the three words right before it. By the Spirit. So this was mind-blowing to me about two years ago. I read a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And it said, this is a gospel-centered approach to your sin. If you're anything like me, your approach to sin might look like try harder, put more action steps in place, get an accountability partner, and run hard. I'm not telling you that those are bad things to do, but you're missing the point if you're simply trying to muster up the strength. The gospel-centered approach to fighting your sin looks like this. And I'll again use, use James as an example. So James chapter 3 talks about taming the tongue. Right? How can you bless God with your mouth and also curse him with the same breath? If you look at that text, you can say, oh, I'm going to get a rubber band, and anytime I find myself cursing someone, I'm going to snap it and switch arms. I'm going to try harder to control my tongue, take inventory on how many times I'm swearing, whatever. What if your approach actually started to twist and you said, hey, guess what? God tells me to control my tongue, but I'm a sinner. And I cannot control my tongue. But Jesus, Jesus did. (laughs) Because Jesus lived the perfect life that I could not live. And because he died, rose again, and has gifted me his spirit, Jesus is alive in me. And because Jesus is alive in me, I can fight my sin. I can walk in obedience, not because I'm strong enough, but because Christ is in me. You have a role to play, but you're not alone in your efforts. You need to hear that. Put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, not by your own strength. And note that in verse 14 it says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You are not a child of God because of your attendance at church or salt company. You are not a child of God because you read your Bible every day and do devotions. You are not a child of God because you come from a Christian family and live a moral life. You are a child of God if you are led by his spirit. Stop letting sin steal your identity and tell you who you are when Christ has purchased your identity. Sin cannot define you. And if you want to know what sin wants to do to you, keep reading in verse 15. It says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Your sin wants to be your master. Your sin wants to enslave you. It wants to make you feel powerless. It wants to make you think that it defines you and you need it. You need that substance to feel courage or to dull your pain. You need sexual pleasure to feel an emotional release, or you need to put other people down in order to have confidence, in order to feel good about yourself. Sin offers us an instant gratification of the flesh. We'd be lying if we said it didn't feel good for a second. But what follows is the hangover of guilt, shame, and emptiness. The reality that it has taken us nowhere, and we're actually farther behind than where we started. Paul writes to let us know we're not a slave to our sin anymore. And you don't need to live in fear. And what 
believers in Rome were wrestling with when it came to fear was the identity crisis. Jewish Christians coming back to Rome and wrestling with this idea of, am I now going to be primarily Jewish, adhering to the law, trying to measure up, or am I going to be primarily Christian, driven by God's grace? And Paul is writing to say, God has, God has given you not a spirit of slavery to fall back in, in fear. You don't have to measure up. It's not about adhering to the law. That enslaves you. But we can do this too. Let's not just point the finger and be like, wow, I can't believe they would do that. We do it too. We hear the gospel. We rejoice. We accept it. But as soon as we sin, we fall back into fear. We know we're guilty. We've made a mistake. But it goes to the next step. From guilt to shame. I've made a mistake to now I am the mistake. And we may say that we believe in the gospel, but what is true is we feel to measure up. And we know it's an insurmountable task. So we sit there and we sulk in our sin. This is not from God. It's not a part of his great design for you and is definitely not a gospel response to your sin. As we continue on in verse 15, it says, But you, Christian, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Note that it says, you have received. You have received your identity. It is not earned. He's hammering this home. You have received the spirit of adoption. How many of you guys, like, either are adopted, know somebody that's adopted, or it's, it's close to home for you? A lot of people in this room. Uh, adoption was a foreign concept to me until a year and a half ago. Uh, we have good friends in Cedar Falls who adopted a little boy from Haiti. And, man, if you were to look into his eyes, you would cry. <laughs> he is so stinking cute. But... I learned so much about who God is through a little five-year-old boy. Because he wasn't adopted because he had anything to offer this family. He was chosen because of their love for him. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. For a child in Haiti, in a screwed up orphanage where they're mistreating children to come to a home in America and to experience what it means to be loved by parents. It's gracious. It's an act of grace to be pulled out of a difficult situation and to be blessed abundantly. But let me tell you, adoption is costly. It cost this family a ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> but beyond that, it caused them, man, a lot of emotional hurt. It caused them difficult conversations with their biological kids. But it is worth it. And what you need to know 
is your adoption is the same story. You were pulled out of the worst situation and you were placed into a family of God, not because of what you have to offer him, but because of his love for you. And it was costly. God gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die a brutal and gruesome death on a cross because that's what it took for you to be in his family. And the result is we get to now call our God, Abba, Father. You can miss this if you skim over it. Abba, Father, it's what Jesus referred to God the Father as when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before his crucifixion, he says, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. But if not, your will be done, not mine. We can approach God the Father the same way that Jesus Christ, the perfect and holy Son of God, can. Not because of what we can do or what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We can have an intimate and joyful relationship with God the Father. And beyond that, we have the assurance of our salvation. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Our identity cannot be taken from us. When I started in the introduction, I said, guess what? You can lose your friends. You could get diagnosed with cancer on a dime and lose finances. You could lose family. That stuff can be taken from you. You could have your health stripped of you in a, in a heartbeat. But who Jesus says you are who the Spirit testifies within you that you are, that cannot be taken from you. You can cling to that. You have the assurance of your salvation because the Spirit himself testifies of what God is doing in your life. But adoption means more than just being family. Verse 17, Paul writes, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may, may be glorified with him. I started to study what, what adoption meant in first century Rome, because it's clearly different than what we experience today. Uh, a few things stuck out to me. Uh, the first was that the adopted child lost all rights of the old family. Essentially, their old, old life was like, dis, it disappeared. And children oftentimes carried with them a family name that carried debt, and the debt would be wiped out. So being adopted means your debt is paid, your, your past life is gone, and now you are in a new family. You have new rights, you have new, a new life, and you're given the same status as a child that was born biologically into the family. In other words, you belong here. <laughs> I think in today's day and age, adoption can still feel very broken because we can see this disconnect between I'm an adopted child and I'm a biological child. This was not so in Roman days. If you were adopted into the family, you had the same status, the same standing as a biological child. And the most impactful thing that I learned is that the son... The child was chosen by the adoptive father to perpetuate his name and to inherit his estate. Jesus makes you more than forgiven. He makes you righteous. 
But Jesus also makes you more than a child. He makes you an heir to the kingdom. God chose you to perpetuate his name and to inherit his estate. (laughs) Think about that. How jacked up we are and God in his mercy would use people like you and me to glorify his name. Are you kidding me? That we're the people that put him on the cross, but he says, no, you are deserving of my estate. He promises to share with us his glory, his kingdom, a conquered world, the defeat of sin, Satan, and death, and beyond that, the riches of heaven, characterized most by a clear and perfect picture of who he is. God has chosen you. But it does come at a cost. And I want you to be aware of that. Because it says, provided we suffer with him. Jesus is king. Absolutely, there's no denying it. You'll either say it now or you'll say it later. Jesus is king, but we follow a king that was on death row. He came, he was ostracized, he was kicked out, he was spit on, and he was crucified. And if we're going to follow this Jesus, we need to know that we are not exempt from suffering. But know this. If you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. That is a promise. We are promised his estate, his inheritance. Tonight, you need to know that the spirit of God gives you a clear and confident identity. An identity that cannot be taken from you and an identity that is not rooted in this life, but in the one yet to come. Your perfection does not make you a child of God. Believing in Jesus' perfection does. You feeling righteous is not what makes you righteous. Believing in the perfect righteousness of Jesus does. Being led by the Spirit makes you a child of God. Your falling short and your repentance clarifies your identity as much as your clearest victory over sin. We must continue to fight for truth in this identity crisis that we're up against. The world will tell you, life is short. Do what satisfies yourself. God says, put them to death. Put to death the deeds of the flesh and you will live forever. Life is not short. Life is eternal. The world says, try harder. Be a good person. This is how you climb the ladder and measure up. God says, let my gracious spirit lead you on level ground. The world says, purpose is what you have to offer to those around you. And God says, purpose is what I have freely given you based even on your shortcomings. I have given you a new name. I've given you new rights. And I've given you the ability to be an heir. To build my kingdom with me and to inherit heaven. How can we leave tonight and be spirit-led people? Man, I already said it. Please, if, if you have, and you do have time, attend the Bible late night. Figure out what it means to get in this book. This is God's word breathed. It's alive and active, and it shows us his way. 
And if we want to put to death our destructive habits, we need to know what God's will is for us. And as you begin to process what are the deeds of the flesh that are present in my life, put them to death by the Spirit. Let your conviction, your feeling of guilt, turn to repentance, turning the other way and putting it to death. Remember, don't just make a checklist. Rely on God's Spirit inside of you. Jesus is alive in you and he's giving you victory over your sin. Walk in it. Next, preach the gospel to yourself daily. We need the gospel. The gospel is not something to graduate from. We do not accept the gospel and move on to bigger and better things. The gospel is the core identity of who we are as believers. You can't measure up. Jesus did and Jesus died in your place because you couldn't. And because Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan, you can be declared righteous by simply believing in him. And when I say believe, I don't mean believe in your head, believe in your heart. Trust that his work was enough for you. Preach that to yourself. And lastly, do not take lightly what it means to be an heir of the kingdom. Tell somebody about Jesus. And if you don't feel well-equipped, Gospel 101 is your place to go. We have the ability to perpetuate God's name, to build his kingdom, to share the good news, and to help the people that you love and care about get out from under the weight of slavery, fear, uncertainty, and death. Amen? Pray with me. Father, you are so incredibly gracious to give your one and only son because of your love for us. Jesus, we cannot measure up. We cannot do this alone. But you have freely given yourself. And you have defeated sin We see that in your resurrection, God. And you are alive in us, Spirit. Help us to be people that fight against our flesh. Remind us that we have victory over the flesh. Although it is not done away with, we have victory in you. Thank you for the promise we are heirs. God, that we can help build your kingdom and that we will inherit your glory. Help us to be people that suffer well in the meantime because as we follow a king that was crucified, we know that we will be ostracized too. Give us confidence and boldness to stand firm in you, Jesus. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.